Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 263 through 265, which will cover manga chapters 370 through 374. And this will technically conclude the Water 7 arc and where we begin the NES Lobby arc. But to me, like I've always said, I've treated these two arcs pretty much as an entire section, as one big arc. I mean, there is the Water 7 saga, so... I guess technically this is a saga, but at the same time, they feel so interconnected that I don't really differentiate the two as it's basically just one big story, unlike the past sagas where we have a clear like beginning and end to each arc, but they come together to make a bigger story. This, I feel like, is just one big story. But anyways, um, let's get into the start of one of the best stretches of the series ever, even to this day. Okay, so synopsis. As the Straw Hats suffer another defeat at the hands of the CP9 while trying to recover Robin, they must now regroup and plan an all-out attack on the Island of Justice, Ennius Lobby, in order to save Robin before she reaches the Gates of Justice and is lost forever. Alright, so differences. Um, Yeah, like most of Water 7, there are very few differences aside from minor changes. Like a few scenes are shuffled around a bit. But they're all still contained within the same episode, so it just seems more like an effort to just adjust flow and pacing within the episodes, more so than to actually change anything. And then we get the, the scene with uh, Soge King doing his theme song again. This doesn't happen in the manga. It's mainly just done for the anime, which I completely understand why they wanted to bring back this theme song because it's so freaking amazing. So I have no issues with that at, at all. Especially with the fact that Soge King is performing this for Luffy and Chopper. And then when Sanji explains the situation with Robin and his interaction with Bluno, the anime fills this time by showing you almost the entire sequence of the final part of that battle between Sanji, Usopp, Frankie, and Bluno, as well as Robin. And yeah, this is definitely just to kind of pad out time and and sort of not try and progress the plot as much as possible because you literally see that entire sequence over again for like a good four minutes. And in an episode where about 16 minutes of the actual episode is real like progressive content, it just just does feel a little bit uh, annoying that you get this kind of flashback. But ultimately, it's not that big of a deal. But yeah, I mean, if that's all the changes we're really going to get, I'm perfectly fine with that. All right, so let's get into my thoughts on the episode. So picking up right where we left off, Bluno appears from his air door and immediately hits Sanji with a Rankyaku, knocking him down. Sogeking then moves in to defend Robin, but Bluno, like I mentioned in the last podcast, has a pretty incredible ability to essentially warp through the battlefield, confusing and sneaking up on his opponents. And he uses this to get behind Soge King and immediately lands several Shigan blows on him, which look pretty devastating. I mean, Shigan is called finger bullets. So essentially, these are like being shot by guns. And so Usopp or Soge King basically just sustained like three full-on bullet wounds. Of course, the bullets aren't inside of him, but it's a pretty devastating attack, which later on, Soge King just kind of like brushes off a little bit. Anyway, Sanji tries to counterattack, but is just no match for Bluno in his current state after having just fought off Wanze and taking a Rankuk to the chest. And by the way, I always felt like Sanji should eventually learn Rankuk. It just seems like it fits his kicking style so well. Like 
him having a ranged kicking attack would be really cool. Anyways, Robin, not wanting to see Bluno beat up on the pair anymore, requests he stops attacking and leave to protect the two. However, Usopp has one last badass statement for Robin because he knows she's still hiding something that, that's holding her back. And he reassures her that it's okay, but reminds her that leaving a pirate crew is not permitted without the approval of the captain. And probably one of the, you know, the most memorable moments in the arc for me is Usopp looking Robin dead in the eyes as he says, believe in Luffy. And I'm not entirely sure why this moment is so etched in my memory, but there's just something about how it's presented and what it means that's really memorable to me. I mean, first of all, the fact this line is coming from Usopp himself is really significant. Even if it was from a place of misplaced anger, we did see Usopp mention how he lost a little respect for Luffy, and the two had a falling out, obviously, earlier in the arc. However, even through all of that, he tells Robin to believe in Luffy. And I think this is even something that Usopp himself is in the process of coming to grips with for having doubted Luffy. But really, he's come to realize that, yeah, he should still believe in Luffy. He himself lost faith in Luffy and thought that Luffy would eventually just move on without him when he realized that he didn't need him. But he, re but he himself has realized that Luffy would never abandon his crew, especially after seeing the lengths Luffy is willing to go through to get Robin back. Not to mention the countless number of other times he's gone out of his way to help his nakama in the past, whether it's Syrup Village with himself, or Baratia with Sanji, Nami with Arlong Park, or Vivi in Alabasta. And Usopp doesn't want Robin to make the same mistakes as he did and lose faith in Luffy, because ultimately, they all know that Luffy is the man who can get anything done and will eventually become the Pirate King. They just have to believe, and I think most of them do. It's just... Both of them, Usopp and Robin, have had a moment of weakness due to other traumatic experiences, whether it be the Buster Call or the impending death of the Going Merry. This moment always hits hard because it shows us that Usopp regrets leaving and wants to come back, but also because this seems like the first time that anyone seems to break through to Robin's fear and put some visible doubt in her decision to not rely on her Nakama and Luffy. I especially love the way this moment is depicted in the manga as it's done in a split panel where we see Usopp's face on one half and Robin's face on the other to really hammer the resolve that Usopp is trying to instill in Robin and himself and it's a really nice scene because in the anime you don't really get this split screen view. It, it, it cuts from one person to the other while they occupy one half of the screen but you don't ever get a shot of both of their faces overlaid on top of each other or split like it is in the uh, manga. And another really cool thing about this moment, it also shows another way that Usopp is important to the crew and adds an important dynamic that not many of the other members can provide. And that's the human and relatableness side, uh, as he is the most normal crew member of the entire Straw Hats. Usopp is, is a very inspirational and heroic character, and can often be a rallying center for many conflicts to the point where he can even help rally many outside people to their cause just due to his sheer sincerity and relatability. Because we've seen up until now how the other sort of the Galila company or the Frankie family, when they see guys like Zoro and Sanji and Luffy, who are just absolutely monstrously like in terms of strength, which is why they're often referred to as the monster trio. But it's hard to really like put yourself 
in their shoes because they're so far removed from what you are as a normal person. But at the same time, you see someone like Usopp fighting and fighting as hard as he does. It's hard not to want to get on that and, and root for him, even as a person within the universe of One Piece, regardless of us as fans. I mean, I, I know that you watching Usopp really makes you kind of feel for him and cheer for him. And all throughout their fight, Usopp was worried that he served no purpose because of his weak fighting ability, but Oda has continuously been hammering the point that Usopp provides so much more to the crew than just his combat prowess, and this will continue all the way through the remainder of the Enya's Lobby arc, as we will see, which I cannot wait to talk about. We get a little tease of it in the Onu opening, Brand New World, in the episode after this, but I won't try and spoil anything. Despite all this, Robin still cannot bring herself to go with them and quote-unquote chooses to go back to the CP9. Bluno then seemingly rubs it in to, and gives a little explanation as to why Robin will never go back to the Straw Hats. This is obviously exposition dump and it's handled a little clunky how it's placed here, but I get what Odo is trying to go for as he needed to start building up the impending Robin flashback story and to really start establishing why Robin would spurn their rescue attempt so greatly. But I always found this uh, a little weirdly placed in an otherwise intense scene. We do finally get a little more insight as to what is so scary about the Buster Call and why Robin herself is so terrified of it. It's more horrific than anything I had imagined when I was first reading through this, as we learn a bit more of what the Ohara incident is, and it turns out that as a child, Robin witnessed her entire island and its inhabitants burn to the ground, with Robin being the sole survivor at the young age of 8 years old. Essentially, she witnessed the mass genocide of her entire people and the eradication of her home from the face of the earth, as Ohara is now removed from the maps, from what it makes it sound like, at the hands of the world government. And so you begin to understand why she's so scared of this, but you kind of start to sense a hint of survivor's guilt that's been subtly implied throughout the arc as well. Robin believes that she doesn't deserve to continue to live a free and happy life with the Straw Hats, especially when that survivor's guilt is combined with all the villainous things she's done since just to survive, like working for Baroque Works. When put into that perspective, I can't even imagine how much conflict and pain Robin is shouldering. And kind of a spoiler, but that's not even the worst of it, as we'll see a little bit later. And later in the episode, we get a great scene, though, as Frankie and Robin get a short private conversation as Frankie imparts what he's learned from his experiences with Tom to relate to Robin the vital lesson that merely existing isn't a sin. And that seems to really hit Robin hard and kind of open her eyes a bit as well, in addition to what Soga King said earlier. Frankie here also makes a great point that even if he escapes, which he fully intends to do, he needs to get Robin back to the Straw Hats too, as it's pointless if only one of them escapes, as that still gives the world government the ability to reawaken Pluton somehow, giving Frankie a reestablishing of his motivations for working with the Straw Hats to save Robin and fight back against the world government, which I am all about. I really like that it's a slow build-up in terms of turning Robin back to the good side and being more trustworthy of them. Not that she's a, a bad person or on the bad side. It's just it is very frustrating as a fan to see 
how much everyone is doing to save her, but yet she keeps spurning their uh, rescue attempts. But it really is much more natural and realistic that a lifetime of conditioning can't just be reversed in just a couple conversations, but through multiple efforts from a variety of different sources and people. Sanji, obviously hearing that they would use this pain to manipulate her, infuriates him to a level we haven't seen as he rushes towards the air door, but is unable to reach it before it dematerializes and is just left there screaming one of the most visceral yells we've ever heard him. And Hiroaki Hirata really kills it here with his acting. Going back to the Rocket Man, it got knocked off its tracks and separated from the Frankie family cars because of Yokozuna after he attempts to stop yet another sea train from taking his family away. And this is incredible. It's pretty heartwarming, though, as it's explained that Yokozuna thought that Kokoro Chimney and Gombe were all being taken away this time, and he was desperately trying to stop it. And I don't know how, but it really brings a tear to my eyes how hard Yokozuna has been training to the point where he's basically battered his body and still wants to join them to help rescue Frankie. And it's so amazing. And I know I've already talked about Yokozuna from the Frankie flashback, but I just love this story. It's so amazing how much like humanity Oda has inserted into Yokozuna and just the amount of character and care that, that Oda has displayed for a seemingly random pet frog or toad is just incredible. And with that, we end episodes 263 and the official Water 7 portion of the saga with the Puffing Tom arriving with the CP9 escorting Frankie and Robin off the train. We get our first glimpses of this now fabled Aeneas Lobby, a location we kept hearing about with a sense of reverence and dread. And it lives up to both adjectives. It is incredibly beautiful with its sort of palace-like majesty and I love the color palette that Oda chooses for it as it is very pleasing to the eyes with this sort of like teal white green color scheme. It's a very marine themed color, but it's also a very like sanitized look to convey sort of the, the justice and purity that the world government is trying to embody. But we know this is a facade that they're sort of using to mask just how messed up they are. However, at the same time, it, it is incredibly imposing and intimidating with its massive walls, giant gates, and the almost impenetrable geography, as it's an island that is seemingly suspended over an endless pit surrounded by waterfalls. I, I don't quite understand how this uh, geography works, but we'll just keep it, especially with the knowledge that for some reason this area is never shrouded by night. It's always daytime, which is another weird geographical feature of this island. And it kind of adds to that sort of the good guy vibes and the purity vibes that they're trying to go for. But again, it's very symbolic as it's sort of a forced daytime, a forced purity, because you need to balance of both of day and night to kind of feel normal and just sort of this forced feeling of being always day is kind of symbolic of the fact that the world government is basically trying to impose their world view of what peace is like but it's not really peace now of course visually Aeneas Lobby is stunning but the other thing I love about this scene is the music the the piece of music that plays as they're walking towards the Aeneas Lobby entrance is so amazing like, this is a new piece of music we've never heard in the series. 
But it actually makes its debut in movie seven, the um, Karakurijo or like the Mechanical Castle movie. I don't even really remember that movie that well.、Um, but it's used here to perfection. And I pretty much consider this piece of music to be the CP9 theme music. And it's so amazing with how it builds with these sharp strings and then moves into that sort of horror music like portion at the end with the, like the constant. Strings going back and forth. I really can't describe music very well. I don't even want, know why I try. But yeah, I really like this piece of music. It encapsulates the CP9 and sort of the dread of going to the NES lobby very well. Now, with episode 264, we officially begin the NES lobby arc. And holy crap, I can't believe we're finally here because this is easily my favorite part of the entire series so far. And I can't wait to get into these episodes. Also, as noted a while back, This is the episode that Ikue Otani returns from her maternity leave, and it's so great having her back as Chopper. The rescue team is finally reunited as the Rocket Man catches up to the Frankie family, who have also picked up Sanji and Soga King. But the real big reveal here at the beginning of this episode are the remaining members of the CP9. So the final three members of the CP9 are introduced here in a similar fashion to the Baroque Works officer agents, and at this point, I was blown away because it had never occurred to me that there were other agents. Like, I don't know why. When I first read through this, I was really surprised that there were more CP9 agents because I thought that the five with Spandam is, is the CP9 agent. And, and just never really, I never even thought the fact that, yeah, there would be more agents because they're never even mentioned. But also at the time, I remember being so hyped by this reveal because it's now eight on eight with the CP9 versus the Straw Hats if you include Frankie in the Straw Hats. And I was just like, oh my God, this is basically going to be like, holy shit, this is Alabasta all over again, where each Straw Hat is going to get their own one on one fight. And these in One Piece are like major events that I know every fan gets hyped for now. As it's become tradition every arc to see who will face off. In their 1v1s. And I feel like NES Lobby is where this tradition really gets solidified, as this is now the third time we've seen this after Arlong Park and Alabasta. Anyways, getting back to the intro of the new CP9 agents, we get Kumadori, this kabuki like performer, you know, agent that even talks like he's in a kabuki play, who looks like an oversized human. And then next we get Jabra, probably the most normal looking of them, that seems to have a very fiery and aggressive feel to him. And then we get Fukuro, which means owl in Japanese, but he reminds me nothing really of an owl other than maybe his overall silhouette shape and is easily the strangest looking of the three, as he's this sort of dopey, rounded looking guy with a zipper for lips to apparently help keep him from disclosing intel and secrets, as he is a government secret agent. But he seems to fail at that. <laughs> But yeah, this cast of characters is really funny. And I think that what stands out to me most about these remaining members are the fact that they seem way sillier and goofier than the serious and intimidating tone of the four that we've already been introduced to. Not just visually, they look far more out there, but in the way they act and interact, as Kuro and, and Jabura seem to bicker a lot. And while you have Kumadori trying to commit seppuku for his failures, but his tech guy is so quick. And instinctual that he can't actually stab himself, which is a little disturbing but funny at the same time. And yeah, these guys seem like a deliberate attempt by Oda to round out the villain team with a more balanced roster and give them a variety 
sort of to contrast the serious tone of, say, like Luchi, Kaku, and Kalifa, and Bluno. And it'll be interesting to see what their interactions are like with the sort of the super serious group, particularly Luchi and Kalifa. Now, when we cut back to our heroes, we are immediately placed back in Soge King's theme song, which we find that he is performing this for the rest of the Straw Hats and the Frankie family, as well as the Galila company, to introduce himself. And to everyone, they immediately see through the disguise and that it's just Usopp, but Chopper and Luffy, being the naive and gullible ones, they literally believe that Soge King is a friend of Usopp who's a hero called here to help them. <laughs> and Chopper even asks for an autograph, which Soge King signs as himself. And when receiving the autograph back, he, he also asks exactly where the Sniper Island is. And Soge King dramatically responds, it's in your heart. <laughs> this is the most corny thing ever, but I laugh every time. And then we get the cherry on top of the camera pulling back to Nami and asking her, where is that? Like, the, the, the Tsukumi jokes never fail to get a laugh out of me. After Sanji explains why Robin keeps rebuking the rescue attempts, it gets Luffy all fired up and annoyed at Robin while Nami is trying to get Luffy to understand that it's not Robin's fault. But it's too complicated for him to want to even try to understand further. And Zoro just tells Nami to give it up as it doesn't necessarily change their ultimate goals. And so yeah, we get this classic Zoro and Nami acting as sort of the parents or guiding vice captains of, of Luffy. Which is, again, I really like seeing. I do like the little touch of that moment when Luffy says he doesn't care about any of that other stuff. And yells that he just wants to rescue Robin and beat anyone up that stands in the way of that. And it cuts to Nami giving this sort of subtle smiling, seeing this. And this moment, at least to me, is Nami remembering everything he and the others went through to save her from Arlong in a very similar way. And it brings her warmth and hope that they can do the same for Robin. There definitely are a lot of parallels to Arlong Park in terms of the story with saving Robin. I mean, both are female crew members and they leave to join an organization against their will but will seemingly keep refusing help from Luffy. And I think that's why I like Water 7 and NES Lobby so much, because I believe this is Oda like taking that formula of what worked in Arlong Park in Alabasta and completely perfecting it. And this whole arc is the result of that. And I, yeah, I absolutely loved everything about the NES Lobby and Water 7 arcs. We then move to the planning stages and this whole part gets my hair raised as it's so chilling and so cool to see them all get their roles and how everyone else is literally just there to get the Straw Hats to the Tower of Justice before Robin passes it as they're the only ones capable of even battling the CP9. We also get another tease that Luffy's new strategy against the CP9 is not actually a, a strategy but more so a new move apparently. And I can't wait to talk about this a little bit more. I'm going to talk a little bit about it in the spoilers, but we'll definitely talk about it in future episodes. However, in true Luffy fashion, even after acknowledging that he understood the plan, he still rushes in by himself, disregarding everything. And I gotta say, the last shot of Luffy hanging off the flagpole, admiring the NES lobby, is a pretty great shot. I just love the look and colors of NES lobby, and I can't understate how beautiful this shot looks. And Luffy straight up doesn't even care. He just rushes in and starts to take like a hundred soldiers on it all at once and plows right through them, ending this set of episodes. But obviously before we conclude this podcast, we actually have a brand new opening and a brand new ending theme. 
So we'll talk about the opening first. So beginning in episode 263, we get a brand new opening titled Brand New World, performed by the J-pop duo D51. And if you've listened to my opening theme ranking episode, you'll already have heard a lot of this, but I'm going to expand on this quite a bit. Uh, this is my second favorite opening in the entire series, even to this day. So this period was a glorious moment as I got my favorite opening and then it directly after it got my second favorite opening. And this opening theme freaking blew me away though. First off, the song is freaking insanely good and catchy. Like crazy catchy. It puts you in such a good mood and, and such an energetic mood. And I listened to this while working out like mad. I think I listened to this song a good 200 times over just rip on straight up repeat and with no other songs i just listened to this and it wasn't even the full song because i didn't even have the full song available to me at the time it was literally just the anime version that was a minute 30 seconds and i kept playing that on repeat for a good month but yeah the lyrics and the themes of the song are pretty standard for one piece about adventuring and overcoming obstacles and doubts but where this song really blew me away was with the accompanying animation it gets you so hyped, and I was not prepared for this one in this first debut. It starts off with a couple of color spreads coming to life with the Straw Hats as soldiers. Um, and I remember how even that was cool because it was definitely one of my more memorable color spreads. And then we see a montage of the big players of the story kind of indicating to us that One Piece is about to expand and be more of a global story with much more parts working in the background, as we'll see later on. And we see a few scenes of the Straw Hats having fun and hanging out. But the part that really puts this opening on another stratosphere for me was the second verse of this opening because I definitely was not prepared for this. And if you remember with Kokoro no Chizu, that was the first and only time so far we've had in the story uh, with spoilers, like actual story spoilers featured in the opening. So I had no idea at the time in 2006 that this was going to be the start of a trend so when the spoiler scenes for this arc happened my jaw was on the floor at what they were showing us animated for the first time because some of these moments i had been waiting a while to see animated because like i mentioned enia Sabi features a cavalcade of iconic moments and we see several of them just in this opening alone and i couldn't believe it since this isn't the spoiler section, I'll only vaguely reference what's actually shown in the opening and try not to provide any sort of spoiler context to keep those of you who wish to be in the dark as much in the dark as possible after seeing this opening. But first off, I love how the second verse begins and the music kind of crescendos to reveal Luffy doing some sort of a new technique where he pumps his legs and even possibly a transformation. But the coolest thing is that the music syncs up to when the big boom in the music happens we see luffy hitting bluno with some sort of an attack that's so fast it beats the ever-living shit out of him off screen and that moment is just so amazing and we then see a montage of everyone's 1v1s just like i mentioned with now the introduction of the remaining cp9 agents and so we get scenes with zoro versus kaku sanji versus Khalifa, which i don't understand how that's going to work at the time when this came up in the anime or in the manga how is Sanji going to fight against a woman? And then we get Soka King firing something with a huge staff slingshot now that we've never seen him use, as well as Nami attacking someone that we can't see. So we don't know who Nami's 1v1 opponent is going to be. 
and then we get Frankie versus Fukuro, and then a crazy tease of some insane transformation for Chopper where he's all huge and monstrous. And of course, I knew what all these were as I had already read them in the manga, but seeing them animated for the first time was simply euphoria. But then the big kicker, we get to see the epic stare down in front of the Tower of Justice between the full CP9 agents and the Straw Hats as they prepare to save Robin and Frankie. And seriously, I still get chills watching this opening as this moment is my favorite scene in the entirety of One Piece to this day. And I had been anticipated seeing this animated for like seven or eight months at the time and we got a sneak peek already in the opening. And yeah, I can't imagine what this opening is like for an anime-only watcher, as this spoils so much, yet entices you so much as well. And some of the things you're seeing, you can't believe. And it must have been crazy to watch that and not have your mind kind of go into, like, theory mode. And yeah, and anyways, as, as you can tell, I love this opening. It's just a shame that it was criminally underused with only, like, tw I think this lasted only 12 episodes, which sucked because in order to make way for the longer extended two-and-a-half-minute opening, I think they sort of mandated that this, this changed. I, I really don't know the background of it, but that, that's what it seems like. And then similarly for that 12-episode run, we also get a new ending theme. And yeah, we get an awesome ending theme, which would also unfortunately be the end of the ending themes, as this would be the last one before doing away with ending themes entirely in favor of an extended two and a half minute opening that I just mentioned. And for our last ending theme, we get Adventure World by Delicatessen. This is actually one of my favorite endings, despite how forgettable this ending seems to be in the eyes of many fans, or ears of many fans. <laughs> I love the tune and the tone of the song with its really upbeat and fun pop rap style. It's super catchy and just overall a good time to be had while listening to this song. But the thing that obviously stands out the most about this ending is the lack of real animation. Although we do get to see the Straw Hats in their chibi forms, which is cool, and in all the glory that's attached to it, but instead it gives us the fans an opportunity to be showcased. Much like how at the end of each manga Tankoban volume, there are always a few pages dedicated to showcase fan-submitted fan art. And this is sort of the anime's way of honoring that tradition, which I think was really cool to kind of finish it off with a dedication to the fans. But yeah, we're now in the NES Lobby arc proper, and if you thought Water 7 was awesome, NES Lobby is just a string of hype moments one after the other, let me tell you. I would say this arc has some of the most iconic moments of the entire series, and where basically One Piece goes from sort of an, an adventure story to an actual adventure epic. And yeah, I seriously cannot wait to talk more about the Enya Lobby. But yeah, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Uh, check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes and see some pictures of my manga collection. Also, if you feel so inclined, please feel free to donate uh through my um support links as always i wanted to thank you for taking the time out to listen to my podcast there'll be a small spoiler section about some of the stuff that's shown in the brand new world opening as well as luffy's reference to his new moves and but yeah other than that stay safe out there and i hope to see you on the next episode bye
All right, so spoiler sections. I think the biggest thing I wanted to talk about was, in fact, the Luffy's new moves. Clearly, he's referencing the idea for Gear Second and Gear Third. And it's interesting how Oda threw these in there. Because, yeah, it, it does, e- even with those lines in there, when he busts out Gear Second and Gear Third, you're just kind of left wondering, like, how did he come up with this? Like, when did he have time to train for this? Especially when you get this. You get the the knowledge that Luffy came up with this just in the last few days after seeing the CP9, in particular Bluno using Soru, and sort of learning that's the, sort of the the basis for how he should approach coming up with Gear Second, especially. I will still go on record saying that Gear Second is my favorite sort of transformation for Luffy, but yeah, it does seem a little random that he just comes up with this. And I remember thinking that at the time, and I remember there was a lot of conversation from the fans, just sort of thinking like, it seems really weird how Luffy can just like come up with this two new transformations and two new sets of moves, just on the fly like that without any training. But I think now, and again, this is going to be spoilers for deep into Wano, actually the end, pretty much the end of Wano arc. So if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, we now know probably the reason why he was able to come up with these so quickly is because his devil fruit allows him to do that because it's based in terms of there's no limit to its creativity as long as the person's imagination is is wild enough. And so we obviously know Luffy has a crazy wild imagination in terms of how he comes up with moves and stuff like that. So really, he just needed to sort of think about what he wanted to do and somehow his fruit allowed him to do that. But yeah, I mean, that first moment when he busts out Gear Second is so freaking amazing. And I loved seeing it in the opening when this episode aired and seeing that scene of Luffy doing Gear Second. And you know, it's funny because I, and I'll talk more about this when this episode comes up, but between this opening and the way I interpreted it in my head in the uh, manga, Gear Second actually functioned a lot different when I actually saw it in the real episode. Um, I won't necessarily go into it right now, but I will say, yeah, I, I definitely envisioned Gear Second being different than what I what it actually ultimately ended up being. And I know that sounds very confusing right now, but it'll make more sense once we get to that episode and I talk a little bit more in depth about it. But yeah, there, and then some of the other things we saw in the opening... I think the biggest one that raises a lot of questions is Chopper's monster point. Because that was another moment where you see in the opening and you're just like, what the hell is that? And you don't really realize until you actually see Chopper's fight with Kumadori and him turning into monster point, which is kind of a big thing. And the other thing about the... um, we don't We don't necessarily see... The, uh, who Nami is fighting because obviously they show that Sanji starts off fighting against Khalifa, but we know that Nami is the one that eventually ends up finishing her off because Sanji can't fight Khalifa. And I thought that was a great like misdirection as well on the opening's part and, and on Oda's part, <laughs> to be honest. And yeah, so anyways, I don't necessarily want to keep recounting the entire arc of Enya's lobby here, but yeah, there's just so many cool things about Enyaslavi that's awesome to talk about. And I definitely can't wait to get more into it. But for, as for the spoiler sections, I'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening and I will catch you on the next episode. 
拜。